Voices are exotic dancers enter one by one. Make love to all of your orifices in your seduction. Hello and welcome to Ear Seduction. I'm your host, Paul Schilling. Today I'm very happy to bring to you a physicist, somebody that works at the University of Colorado at Denver, a real live scientist. And this is a first part in a multi-part series I hope to produce in season three, where I have in-depth discussions with people that actually know things. And uh, I'm very excited to be presenting this to you now. I'm a little embarrassed at my lack of knowledge in the field that we're discussing, and it shows in this interview. Um, but what what an opportunity it was to speak with Clyde. A couple of things for you in preparation for this episode. Clyde is not very podcast savvy, and I placed the recorder on the table between us, and he kept touching the table under the table, and I, I just didn't see him doing it, and so I couldn't really correct him, and didn't know notice it or didn't realize it until after the fact. So you're going to hear him touching the table, and you'll, that's what you're hearing, the boom, boom, boom. And so I do apologize for that. Unfortunately, he was doing it a lot while he was talking, so I couldn't cut it out. Otherwise, we wouldn't have heard what he was saying, because I would have been cutting out what he was saying. And if you're like me, what he's saying is absolutely fascinating and, and just mind expanding. Uh, so I bring this to you now. Let's listen in. My name is Clyde Zaydens. Uh, I am a professor emeritus at the University of Colorado, Denver. Um, I came to Colorado as one of three faculty members to start the department in Denver. We were hired by the CU Boulder Physics Department in order to start the department. So I actually came 52 years ago in 1967. Uh, my colleagues were John Shonley and Bob Rogers. Um, I happen to still be here. Uh, I'm currently the chair of the department. Uh, I'm hoping that we will have a new chair fairly soon. I grew up in Cincinnati. Uh, neither of my parents graduated from high school, but they were very supportive of education. Uh, when I was a young kid, uh, I immediately liked things that were scientific and mathematics. But the real tipping point was in the fourth grade when I was uh, nine years old. Um, we had a science teacher. The fourth grade was the first grade where you didn't have the same teacher all day long. And uh, Dr. Uh, Wakefield, uh, who was destined to be a college professor, uh, had taken a year to teach in elementary schools uh, because he was interested in education and science. And he was very charismatic. And uh, that was the point at which I knew I wanted to be a scientist. And uh, You were nine at the time? I was nine. Yeah. Um, although I was, you know, before then, uh, my parents were saying, oh, he's, he's going to be an engineer. Uh, sure. And, you know, pre-nine, I really didn't know that much difference between engineering and science. But in this class with uh, Dr. Wakefield, it was amazing. And so I uh, realized that that was what I wanted to do. And I've been very fortunate. I'm sure that I'm in a very small minority of people who decided what they wanted to do and sort of took a very straight line path to do it. Went to a especially good high school. Uh, Walnut Hills High School in Cincinnati is a uh, college preparatory public high school. Uh, in the fifth grade, every student in Cincinnati takes a test, and if you score high enough, you're invited to go to that school. It prepared me extremely well for my going to Caltech and the California Institute of Technology in Pasadena. Uh, I stayed there for my PhD after I got my bachelor's degree, and my very first job was here at the University of Colorado, and 
I'm still here. <laughs> so and how long have you held the position here at the university? Has it been 50 years, like you said? Or uh, I, I had a, a, a 10-year, uh, what I call, unpaid sabbatical. In 2004, I thought I was retiring. Oh, no. And I actually moved out of state. I moved to uh, the state of Washington. But I was asked to come back in 2015, so I've been chair of the department for the last five years. Oh, wonderful. Okay. And so that's been... Uh, but I'm... I'm at the point now where I think it's time to retire again. <laughs> uh, we, what we've done is we call that 10-year period uh, when I was retired. We don't call it retirement. We call it as a 10-year unpaid sabbatical. Uh-huh. So, But anyway, uh, I enjoyed living in the Pacific Northwest by the ocean, but uh, I've been in Denver a pretty good fraction of my life, so yeah. this is home. Wonderful. Um, so you teach physics here, or you're the head of the physics department here. You've and taught physics, though, in your I, past, and that's your that's the, the majority of your background. Is oh, physics, yes. Right? No, no, I taught for many, many years. It turns out that at the moment, I'm giving guest lectures, but I'm not actually teaching any courses. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's the best of both worlds, because I love explaining things to people, but I don't have to grade. Right. <laughs> and so that makes... Uh, the, your red re- pens are retired. Exactly. You, yeah. Exactly. Okay, um, so moving on to physics now. Um, I've prepared a list of questions here, and I'd like to do as much of a deep dive into physics as we can um, in the in the time that we have. Um, so, just more generally, though, starting off, um, is if there was one thing about physics specifically and science in general that you wish everyone would accept or come to learn or know, what would it be? So starting with physics and then moving to science generally. Okay, uh, definitely something that I always uh, talk about in the very first lecture in an introductory course, and I sometimes have to remind uh, our students that are further along, you can never prove a physical law. The word truth just doesn't really uh, have much meaning in science. What we try to do is we try to understand things. So we test physical laws, and if we find that the every time we test a law, and a good example would be Einstein's general relativity, that te- that ex- that theory has passed every test so far. Mm-hmm. Does that mean we have proved general relativity? No. But it's the best we have, and we keep it, and we do a lot of calculations. But one of the other things about science is there are uncertainties. That's the fact that you can't prove uh, the physical law already introduce a little bit of uncertainty. But you might hear people say, well, since Einstein's theory is more accurate than Newton's theory, Newton's theory is wrong. Well, that's not true. Um, We don't talk about right or wrong. We talk about what's the best model we can use. And model is an extremely important word in science. We try to, science is the study of trying to understand things. doesn't matter which branch of science you're in, whether it's chemistry, biology, uh, geography, geology, uh, physics. We try to understand things. We try to explain things. Sometimes we can do that by doing experiments. We say have a, a hypothesis. Uh, we do an experiment to test that hypothesis. It may or may not be true. If it's true, we go on. If it isn't true, we have to come up with another hypothesis. But There's a lot of science which is very different. For example, if we try to explain the history of the universe, we can't go back to the Big Bang and rerun that history. It's not something that we can test that way. So we have to test by looking at whatever situations 
observations, etc., that we can look at and see whether it fits what our model of the uh, history is and what it's not. Getting back to Newton's theory, Newton's theory worked extremely well for a very long time. In fact, people do not use general relativity in order to send spacecrafts out to the outer planets. Newton is perfectly okay for that. If you want to explain the Big Bang at the very beginning, if you want to explain the way in which black holes work, well, Newton won't work. You have to have general relativity. Mm-hmm. So it's a matter of not the th- that the theory was wrong, it just wasn't as complete as a newer theory is. Mm-hmm. And there may be a day uh, sometime in the future when we'll have something that's even more advanced than general relativity. Sure. One of the frontiers, and I, I won't get into it because it's not an area that I know that well, the theory of quantum mechanics and the theory of general relativity both work extremely well in their own regimes. But there are a few situations, such as the center of black holes and the first 10 to the minus 43 seconds of the Big Bang, where both theories have to be available and we've never been able to put the two theories together. So there may be some super theory of which quantum mechanics and general relativity are a part, but we've been looking for 80 years and haven't found it yet. So at the at the center of a black hole, you would use both theories. Yes, you would to have to some extent. To some extent, but right, but they but e- each has its own limitations. Is what right, you're saying. and they're contradictory at the be- at the center of the. So that's why we need something that supersedes both quantum mechanics and general relativity, because they give c- conflicting answers. Right. Okay. And so, which is right? Well, yeah. <laughs> some kind we have of to there. hypothesize and then yes. try to falsify. Right. Right. That's the idea. Yep. Um, okay, so about science in general, then, what do you wish that everybody would accept, or was that what you would wish? Oh, the fact that uh, there's certain uh, uh, things we can explain to the point where we're very confident that we've got the right answer, uh, but that there's always uncertainty. Sure. And that you don't find something, I mean, you can measure numbers to very high accuracy, mm-hmm. that's fine, but answering questions, for example, on the origin of the chemical elements, which is the area that I did most of my research in, or in biological evolution. All of these are good theories that still have a few things that haven't been answered. There are uncertainties. That doesn't mean if you're uncertain, the whole thing's wrong. Absolutely not. It means you've still got work to do. So, like, uh, looking at the Big Bang, and we're going to get into the Big Bang uh, in some more detail, I hope, but looking at the Big Bang, uh, you're saying that there's some uncertainty because we can't, we can't basically run the test over again. We can't see how it exactly happened. But we have evidence to suggest that the vast space that we see now was once much, much more compact. It was much, much smaller, right? That's right. So however we might adjust the Big Bang in the future, that aspect of the Big Bang is essentially fact. Is that correct? Like, I understand well, what you're saying. the word we, fact is... no. It is well, I say absolute, essentially fact. Okay, okay. There is a, a, a bit of potential it, probability or uncertainty, but the evidence does describe a universe that was once much smaller. Absolutely. And uh, what I would say is it is by far the absolutely best explanation for what we see today. Mm-hmm. And so, like, even if the Big Bang were somehow to be changed or some great revelation, pardon the use of the word revelation, but some great thing was come to be known through math and science and and falsification and testing, 
and the scientific method. We would never say, though, that the Big Bang at least the expansion of the universe never occurred. That's something that we're probably it's, never going to... And probably. It's very unlikely that the Big Bang will be tweaked. In fact, it was tweaked in a major way um, 25 or 30 years ago. I sometimes lose track of time. <laughs> sure. It turns out that there is a period right after the Big Bang, and I know you want to talk more about the Big Bang, called the inflationary period. Yes, we actually where, get into that. Where the Big Bang, where, where the universe expands incredibly fast, mm-hmm. much faster than a low, steady expansion might have suggested. And once we started looking at that inflationary period, what we discovered is it answered some of the objections that we had originally to the Big Bang. It answered some of the observables today that we had some trouble explaining. Inflation helped to answer those questions very well. So the the Big Bang Theory will probably still be tweaked in some ways. Mm -hmm. But at this stage, my bet is that it's only tweaks. It's not going to be a major replacement. But I cannot say that for sure. Well, and I think to get to your point earlier, science doesn't say anything for sure. Yes. We have certain probabilities. Right, exactly. But the probability that the universe used to be much smaller than it is today is very, 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 very high. Right. Yeah. Okay. Right. Um, I just wanted to, to sort of plant a flag there. I know people uh, like to use the word fact or certainty, or they like to feel certain about what they believe. If you want to be the most accurate and the most certain that you can be, the Big Bang is your best bet right now. Right. Right. Okay. And so are many other scientific theories. Oh, yes. Wonderful. Um, okay. So... This is sort of uh, hopefully not off topic, but I wanted to bring an element of sort of wonder and amazement and maybe um, awe or joy. Is there anything about physics that gives you those senses or those feelings, awe, wonder, joy? I know some people think that science is is maybe too dry or it's not as imaginative or it doesn't um, captivate some of the human emotions that we have. But I was wondering, from your perspective, having seen what you've seen and learned what you've learned, is there any aspect of physics or cosmology that really speaks to you in that way? The whole thing. (laughs) Yeah? No, really. Uh, You know, there are areas in which I've studied and I have done research in, Mm -hmm. and it's exciting to do research in in those areas, and you spend a lot of time doing research. And not all research is filled with joy and awe, Sure, uh, particularly at 3 o'clock in the morning when when the accelerator you're using uh, uh, springs a vacuum leak and you've got to fix that. But the bottom line is that when you learn something, it's very satisfying. But I take joy and excitement in all of physics, all the discoveries. There are areas that I would like to know more about, and people ask me what I'm going to do when I retire, uh, and I answer, well, I'm not sure all of the things, but physics is one of them. There are those areas. Those, there are those areas of physics that I've never really studied very well. I only know very, very slightly, and I want to dig in and learn more about them. Oh, good. And, it, like, for me, uh, I always it always falls on deaf ears when people try to try to make science bland, or they say, well, it's, you're just too logical, or you're too reasonable, <laughs> or whatever, and it's like, really? Because I feel really oh. emotional when I, when I look at a, a distant galaxy and think of all the possibilities and potentials that could be happening there, or even our own, and the vastness of space, and just, you know, it's like cosmic wonder. I, mm-hmm. I feel like I'm but, constantly bombarded with those emotions when I get scientifically minded. 
No, that's good. I mean, uh, there are people like you, like me, who get very excited about this. But I don't want to put down those people who don't. Uh, they have different interests. Um, they might find uh, joy, and I, you know, I'm trying to think of an example. I do like poetry, but it's not a, a passion of mine. But there are people who get that sort of emotional excitement in good poetry. Sure. Um. So, okay, moving on again to the Big Bang. Um, so many of us understand that the Big Bang happened or we've heard of the Big Bang. Um, what do you think is the single most compelling evidence for the Big Bang event, and why is it so compelling? Well, there's more than one single thing. Uh, because my background, uh, experimental background, is in nuclear physics, mm-hmm. um, first of all, the expansion of the universe from a point of very small size, which is what we think the Big Bang was. Uh, and very it, high density, right? Yeah, oh, incredibly high density of all of the... And high heat. And I, I, in fact, uh, I remember teaching an astronomy course many, many years ago uh, and uh, explaining about the fact that all the matter in the universe was once compressed into something smaller than the size of an atom and getting some... Uh, Pretty negative comments from the back of the room. Sure. Uh, I won't use the word, but basically. Hecklers. Yes. Anyway, um, and the fact that if you run the clock backwards, uh, given the current rate of expansion of the universe, it comes back to just about the right uh, the idea that everything was in the same place at the same time. Okay. Uh, so that observational fact. But one of the, the really tricky things that has come to pass with maybe the last 10 years and and satellite observations um, is the fact that a few minutes after the the actual start of the universe um, the temperatures had dropped and the densities had dropped to the point where nuclear reactions could occur so uh, the area that I had studied most of my research career is called nucleosynthesis the origin of the chemical elements and roughly 20 minutes after the universe when the universe was 20 minutes old there was a certain distribution of elements that didn't change until uh, some hundreds of millions of years later when stars started doing nuclear reactions and creating other chemical elements. So we have an idea of what that primordial combination of materials were, uh, hydrogen, helium, uh, and a little bit of lithium. And that was it. So there had been some fusion. Oh yes, no, no, no. This occurred in, in roughly three to, to, or you know, maybe a minute to twenty minutes. There was a period of time when nuclear reactions were occurring. Prior to that time, it was too hot for nuclear reactions to occur, <laughs> and after that time, it was too cold and too diffuse for nuclear reactions to occur. So there was a sweet spot or a Goldilocks zone or whatever word you want to use <laughs> when nuclear reactions were occurring. Mm-hmm. So there are isotopes of these chemical elements, hydrogen and helium in particular, that are interesting for this evidence. So most of hydrogen is called hydrogen-1, but there's a little bit of hydrogen-2, uh, most of helium is helium-4, but there's a little bit of helium-3, and I mentioned a little bit about lithium-7. So if we do a calculational model of what the universe was like during that period of time when nuclear reactions were occurring, we are dead on on our uh, calculations and measurements of the isotopic abundances of the hydrogen and helium. 
and that may sound pretty dry, but we're talking about uh, orders of a uh, hundred million to a billion difference between, say, hydrogen uh, one and hydrogen two helium-4, helium-3, and the tiny amount of lithium-7. So our models predict something that we actually see, which says we think that the Big Bang nucleosynthesis period, these few minutes after when the universe was a few minutes old, produced these elements, and that's exactly what we see. To me, so that to you is hugely compelling. That's hugely compelling, because that's my area: is the nuclear physics, nuclear reactions. I should so, probably mention that a good fraction of the research that I did in nucleosynthesis was measuring the nuclear reactions in a laboratory, and then using the numbers that we extract from our measurements to give to those people who calculate what happens inside the stars using stellar models. So this was. Nucleosynthesis was probably the major part of my research career. It wasn't the only part. I did other mm-hmm. kinds of nuclear physics and a few other things, uh, but that was the major. If someone said, what is the one thing that you did most research in, it would be nucleosynthesis. Okay. And so, okay, so touching on that a little. So when you were talking, you said hydrogen 1, you yes. said hydrogen 2. Yes. You said helium 3. Helium four, right? And you said lithium seven, right? When you say hydrogen one, what does the one stand for? The atomic mass, not the exact mass, but the atomic mass number is one. There's just one proton. Okay, so you're talking about protons. Yes. So, but some hydrogen has two protons. No. Okay. Uh, So what's hydrogen two? Hydrogen two has one proton and one neutron. Oh, okay. So it has two elements to its nucleus. And so it's twice as heavy. Elements. Approximately. That's the wrong word. Yeah. Two components. It's it's roughly twice as heavy as hydrogen one. Oh, okay. Helium three is roughly three times as heavy as hydrogen one. It has two protons and one neutron. Okay. Uh, Helium four has two protons and two neutrons. Okay. And lithium seven has three protons and four neutrons. So these are basic... Uh, differences between hydrogen atoms, helium atoms, right, um, and lithium atoms, right, and and you're talking about your field of study was how they fused together. Yes. Okay. And so right. that's where you know the most is not just how it was. Did you focus a lot on hydrogen, helium, and lithium? No. No. Or did we were, you work on more complex, more heavier elements. Heavier elements, because uh, after the Big Bang was over. We still had to make all the rest of the elements in the periodic chart of chemical elements. And so, for example, my PhD thesis was on the fusing of helium-4, carbon-12, to make oxygen-16. Okay. So that was the study that I did to, uh, you know, for my PhD thesis. Okay. And so for those that don't know... This happens in supermassive stars, right? Or even sometimes smaller stars or that like particular, binary systems? Well, no, that right? particular uh, reaction can occur in stars as light as our sun. Oh, okay. So it so doesn't have to be huge. No. I mean, there, okay. are, there are many, many reactions that can only happen in much more massive stars. Right. But it turns out that probably the end of the line for our sun, roughly 5 billion years from now, our sun will be fusing the helium... Uh, and carbon to make oxygen, or it's actually going to be happening when heliums will be fusing to make carbon, and then uh, additional uh, heliums will 
fuse with carbon to make oxygen. So at some point, our sun will turn into a white dwarf mm-hmm. where the major components of the star will be carbon and oxygen. Okay. And it'll be the end of the line for us. Uh, and I've heard that the, the initiating fusion in a star, the, the, the fusion that initiates its death is often iron. Is that also yes, a component but, to this? but that's not going to happen to the sun. The sun's no, too light. Not. In fact, okay. the, the boundary between light stars, and this is, sounds kind of weird, uh, stars that are eight times the mass of our sun is sort of the boundary between low-mass stars, like our sun is, mm-hmm. and high-mass stars. Okay. So the high-mass stars are the ones that eventually supernova and create elements, iron and then on beyond. Sure. Uh, and Platinum and, co- and yeah, copper. gold and copper. everything. Yeah. Yeah. It's... Um, and. Typically, when I give a lecture on this in in our advanced astronomy and astrophysics courses, it's about a two-period lecture, so it's about a three-hour lecture. So I think we'll leave it at at here as saying, you know, there's a a whole bunch of different chemical, I'm sorry, nuclear reactions. Uh, And I'm glad I made that, that slip. Yeah, those aren't the same. Those are not the same. Chemical reactions do not change the basic chemical elements. Nuclear reactions do. Right. And in ancient times, alchemy was what people were hoping to do. In the modern, uh, starting in the 20th century, we actually did do alchemy by using particle accelerators. Practiced alchemy, didn't he? Yes, he did. That's yeah, uh, one of his downfalls, potentially. I wouldn't say downfall. Uh, didn't he get sick from it? Didn't he get sick from exposure to... I, I don't know that Maybe part I'm of thinking the, of a different uh, scientist. I I don't know about that. I don't think... He lived to a ripe old age, so I'm not oh, okay. sure that... that well, I'm thinking of a different scientist. Probably, because yeah. if they used a lot of mercury, and we know that mercury vapor is not going to be not very so good, good for you. But uh, I have a friend in San Francisco who is David Kubrin, who is an expert on Newton, and he studied uh, a lot of the papers that Newton wrote on his alchemy. Newton really believed that alchemy could yeah. could happen. Uh, all I meant when I said that was uh, think of all he could have accomplished if he just focused his attention on on science that was uh, well, no, more beneficial. I mean, he already gave so much, but I'm just saying, like, think of that mind. If he wasn't distracted with alchemy, it's kind of like modern day, you know, if we just uh, didn't watch Netflix, maybe we could get something accomplished. Well, okay, I, I won't disagree with that one, but I will disagree <laughs> with the thing with Newton, because what you do that's really creative and, and productive is when you uh, pursue your passions. Sure. Okay. And of course, early in Newton's career, gravity, the, the, how mechanics works, optics, uh, tremendous number of, of. I mean, the man truly was a genius. Oh, yeah. But if he went off into uh, alchemy, that was his passion, and he may, if alchemy could have happened, made another set of big ex- advances. It turns out he went down the wrong street. Sure. But. He was pursuing his passion. And then later on, he was uh, the head of the mint. And uh, I'm told that the uh, the milling on the edges of coins was his invention. Interesting. Oh, and there is a story, and I, I will only say I've heard it. I can't verify how true it is, but um, the scientists on the continent were very sad, so to speak, uh, because Newton wasn't doing anything anymore. So they 
concocted a really difficult math problem, and they had a contest throughout all of uh, the Western Europe and, and uh, England uh, to solve this mathematical problem. And uh, an anonymous solution, which was perfect, uh, appeared, and this was being run out of France, appeared with, uh, as I say, anonymous. It didn't say who did it. Uh, and it was such a clever and beautiful solution to this math problem. And the quote that is supposed to have been said is, by his claw, the lion is known. <laughs> and yeah. So it was clear that it was Newton that had solved that problem. So, It'd be cool to be that smart, wouldn't it? Yes. Oh. Yes, it would I wish be. I was so smart that I could just write an equation and certain people in certain circles would be like, oh, that's Paul. Yeah, <laughs> right. We know who that is. Uh, that doesn't happen to very many people. <laughs> no, it doesn't. It's certainly not going to happen to me. Um, okay, so back to that inflationary, or, yeah, inf- inflationary. inflationary, excuse me, thank yes. you. That inflationary period, uh, it's called cosmic inflation. Um, and it... Um, it's where the universe was thought to have expanded much faster or at a much faster rate than it currently does. Is that oh, a correct analysis? Percentage-wise. I yeah. mean, it, it, it became in a very short period of time. I don't have the numbers because uh, cosmology is, is uh, peripheral to what I do. It's not something I study. But the universe expanded uh, many, many orders of magnitude in a very, very short time, much faster than the speed of light could have done it. But you have to understand that the restrictions on things going faster than the speed of light is anything inside the universe. There's nothing that prohibits the universe itself from expanding faster than the speed of light. Right. So Einstein's special theory of relativity, which puts a sort of boundary saying you can't go faster than this particular speed limit, the speed of light, uh, that does not apply to the universe itself. To space-time. Yes. Right. So... What is our most compelling evidence for that inflationary period? I've heard that there's some controversy that we sort of plugged in this idea because we just couldn't figure out what happened. I, I suspect that that's not true um, in some sense, and maybe it is true in some other senses, but what, what kind of evidence do we have that inflation occurred? The biggest evidence is that the universe could have been so dense that it would expand to a certain point, stop expanding and contract, or it could have expanded much more rapidly than it's expanding. And all of that depends upon the density of the universe. And uh, it turns out that general relativity is a geometric theory. Mm-hmm. So a universe can be positively curved, that's like spheres, and that means that it would eventually reach a maximum size and reconflate, and, yeah. and then uh, rapidly uh go back to what people were calling the big crunch. Mm-hmm. So the reversal of... So a the, rapid collapse. A collapse. That's, mm-hmm. a, that's a good word. The other uh, extreme is a negatively curved universe. And if you can imagine a saddle, if you were at the middle of a, of a saddle, if you go in one direction, you're going up. If you go in the other direction, it goes down. I, I know, uh, since I don't have a... I was using my hands right now, but... No, hey, I understand. It's, it's I think a lot work of people on. would... You could look up, for those of you that are listening, you could just, uh, you could just Google this and there's three thought-to-be shapes of the universe. Right. And so, yeah, one's a sphere, one's like a saddle, like he explained, where it goes up on two ends and then down on, two, on the opposite ends. And then the third one is flat. Right. And the, the idea that the universe just happens to be flat is so amazing. And how could it happen? It turns out inflation does solve that problem. 
So maybe what you were alluding to is the fact that, okay, we had this problem. How come the universe is flat? Well, if it went through this cosmic inflationary period, it would have to be flat. Okay. And that's what we see. And so, so that's a we, good uh, reason to believe that the inflation actually did occur. Oh, okay. Because we see the geography or the geometry of the universe right. being flat. Yes. Okay. Um, so it's not really all that controversial anymore. Is that correct? Not among those people who are pursuing the uh, study of the of the Big Bang and, and cosmology. Is there there, is there, there are, much controversy to the shape or the, or the the flatness of the universe still? No, uh, no. That can be measured. Sure. So the universe is flat. <laughs> is there any is there any possibility that it's just so spherically large that it appears flat or seems flat? Well, do you know how the you know how I'm asking that? No, I, that I know sense? the question. I yeah. mean, because <laughs> getting slightly off the subject, there are people who believe in the flat Earth. Right. Right. Um, that's where I, I was going with that, or that's where I okay deserve no. the idea. Right. Uh, we are able to look at a much bigger. I mean, if you, if you okay, if you wanted to persuade the flat Earth people, you take them up high enough. In a balloon, or sure, uh, or to see the curvature. To, to see the curvature. Yeah. Well, we see far enough out that we see the curvature, and the curvature is flat, and um, so it, it's just. And so it's basically through our technology, our telescopes oh, yeah. are able to see so oh, far yes. that we were able to see a vast enough distance that um, we can see what the um, geometry of that distance is yes. consists of. Right. Essentially. Yeah. Is that right? Right. Okay. And, um, you know, it's sort of interesting because I started teaching astronomy courses just about 50 years ago. And the amount of uh, measurements, technology, discoveries in that 50 years is amazing. Yeah. For example, the Big Bang was only one of a few hypotheses about the origin of the universe when I first started teaching astronomy. Mm -hmm. And today... uh, a vast majority of those people who study astronomy and cosmology just accept that the Big Bang is so far ahead of any other possible explanation that that's what we teach. And that's, just to be clear to the potentially unscientifically minded, um, that's because they've tried to disprove it, right? They've tried to falsify uh, the Big Bang. Yeah. And they failed. They've said if, if this is true, then the Big Bang is false. Right. And they tested it, and it, and it failed, right. essentially. And Pretty so much the so. The Big Bang held up to scrutiny right. yeah. over the last 50 years right. to such a degree that people just say, this is this is what happened. Yeah. We're going to tweak it here and there, probably, to oh, make yeah. it uh, more finely tuned right. or more better understood or to have better math. But essentially, this is what occurred. Right. And, in fact, one of the, the other, you know, I was talking about, uh, and you asked me the question about what, are the major reasons that I believe in the Big Bang. There's another one that I probably should have mentioned a little bit earlier, Please, yeah. which is the cosmic microwave background radiation. That was the one I was thinking of when I asked and you that, the question. And that was historically very important, but it because there really isn't any good explanation for the cosmic microwave background radiation. George Gamow predicted that in the 1940s and everybody forgot about it. <laughs> so in the 1960s when it was discovered, uh, this was a brand new sort of thing. And mm-hmm. then, no, no, no. George Gamow said that's going to be what happened uh, 20 years earlier. So, when you say there's not a good explanation for it, you mean if we don't have the Big Bang? If we don't have the Big Bang, where would you get this? Why would we have this radiation? Yes, exactly. Okay. So Essentially, since that inflationary, getting back to the inflationary period, mm-hmm. since that inflationary period stopped, 
How much bigger has the universe gotten? Oh, incredibly bigger. Okay. Uh, I don't remember what the uh, what the relative sizes were, but uh, the universe was still tiny. It was still that, tiny at that point. Yes. So this inflationary period got us really f- far off, right? It got us in a yes. It got us to a huge, huge, huge universe. But since then, it's gotten it's gotten even right orders of magnitude bigger, and, probably. Oh, many, many orders yeah, of magnitude yeah. bigger. I mean, because okay. this inflationary period was before the period of nucleosynthesis that I was talking about. Mm-hmm. So this occurred before the universe was a couple of minutes old. This happened okay. really, really early in the universe. And one of the things that we need to say is that we cannot see the whole universe. Right. We can only, if the universe we believe is now 13.8 billion years old, we can only see out to about 13.8 billion, 13. billion light years. But the universe is almost certainly bigger than that. So there are yeah. parts of the universe... I think it's about that, 90, don't they? Somewhere around there? Uh, those are all conjectures. Because sure. that's something we don't have any measurements on. Okay. If we can't see it... And I'm an operationalist. If you can't see it, if you can't measure it, I'm glad some people are interested in it. I'm not. Sure. I only am interested in those things that can be tested. Just the facts, ma'am. Yeah, right? exactly. And, and you know, even some of my colleagues say that's a little too limited. But no, I'm comfortable with being an yeah. operationalist. Yeah. If because all you know, what happened before the Big Bang? Oh, very interesting. But I think we have no way to answer that question. So that's it. It's an interesting question. Let's move on to something else. And let's that's do, yeah, let's focus on the things we can really solve. Exactly. Interesting. That's, that's my personal philosophy. Um. So, I guess the, the idea that I'm trying to conceptualize in my head is there was this massive sort of expansionary period where there were all these um, sort of, I, I want to say pockets, but we see density distribution, essentially, mm-hmm. of uh, initial um, matter yes. that was created in the Big Bang. Right. Or that sprang forth, maybe, is a right. way to say, in the, in the Big Bang. Yeah. Right? It was released from this infinitesimally small right. point out into a now an expanding universe. Exactly. And so we see these density distributions, right? Right. Essentially, those density distributions, although they, I understand that the big uh, that the expansion has gotten bigger and bigger and bigger, and so it's gotten less and less, less, less dense on average. Is that right. correct? That's correct. Anywhere you look, it's going to be less dense than it was. But based on those initial distributions, that's why we see, for instance, galaxies clustered together in the distribution that we see today. Is that an accurate way to yes, describe it? Yes, absolutely. If it had turned out that inflation had produced something that was incredibly smooth down to, you know, parts per some gazillion. Like much <laughs> the, more evenly distributed, yes. you mean? We probably wouldn't have galaxies and stars. Because the gravity would all just be sort of evenly distributed. Yeah, exactly. There would be no gravity well to right. create these or to capture these bodies that then formed planets right, and stars. Right. No, that, that slight, and they were slight differences sure. in distribution, but that was what was the seeds for our current galaxies. Okay. So when thinking about space-time and how it expands, I often think about uh, like a large sheet of latex being stretched over uh, like, a, like a large hoop. And if you were to put little dots on this latex and pull the latex over the hoop uniformly, if mm-hmm. you have like a, a hoop meaning like a circular 
Mm-hmm. structure, right? This right. latex would expand all out relatively evenly. I know the universe doesn't expand evenly. In fact, things that are further away are moving faster away from us right. and so on. But just as a conceptualization, but that would even as an happen, elementary one. But that would even happen in your model with the latex being... It, it would. I just, I just, I wasn't sure if that came across when I was describing it. It yeah. would happen. It, right. The, in other words, the edges would be expanding pick, faster than the middle. If you picked one of the dots... To, towards the center of this latex sheet, mm-hmm. those nearer would be moving away more slowly than those farther away. Right. In other words, this is a, this is a good model yes. in terms of explaining why things that are farther away move faster away from you. And that's um, the original dis- uh, discovery by Hubble and Slipher mm-hmm. in, in the early 20th century. And you're talking about the red light shift discovery? Yes, right? yes. Okay. The fact that, well, people saw the, the red shift. The red shift, if, a, if something's moving away from you, the light shifts towards the red end of the, of the electromagnetic spectrum. Right. But what Hubble's uh, work was that he could measure the distance to some galaxies, and he found that the farther the galaxy was away, the greater the redshift. And although... On average. On average. Right, yeah. Yeah. And and so for that particular time, where he couldn't look out as far as we can today, he had a nice direct relationship. If a galaxy was twice as far away, the redshift on average was twice as much. Mm -hmm. And that was where they came up with the idea of the expanding universe. And so, I have two questions in my head, but the first one of just imagining a latex sheet with dots all over it, right? I'm going to evenly distribute the dots for the purpose of the exercise, although I understand that they would be not as evenly distributed. No, they'd be statistically some closer, some farther, but 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 let's let's go go with your model. Let's just evenly distribute them now. Okay. For the sake of the argument, right? Okay. So we've got this inflationary period, right? Where oh, it's no, no, expanding. No. That's way before the dots. There were no dots. The universe... Well, but there was some kind of distribu- distribution of matter, right? There was some was matter. It, it was energy. Oh, at that point, it was pure energy. Yes. Okay, so but during inflation, it was pure energy. Yes, there were no particles, not even quarks. So it was still too hot. Yes. Essentially. Yes. And too dense. Yes. I see. Okay, so then we get this inflation, and it starts to slow down a little bit, or it reaches that tipping point, right, where you start to see the nuclear fusion that you were talking about. Right, but that's long after the inflationary period. And this inflationary period was intense, extreme, and very short-lived. I see. And then you had the universe expanding, cooling down. Uh, you Still have, too hot for, uh, for matter, nu- for, is that correct? For nuclear matter. Okay. Then you had quarks and, and all kinds of... Uh, in fact... People who are doing uh, particle physics try to figure out what was the distribution. There could have been all kinds of uh, very high energy quarks and other particles. So we have an inflation of pure energy that then slows down enough to have some elementary matter. Yes. Not what we would consider matter today. Yes. And then it slows down and cools down a little bit more. And we start getting And proton- we get that sweet spot you were talking about where things start to actually we, where you Where you get protons and neutrons. Mm-hmm. And once you have protons and neutrons, mm-hmm. then you can have nuclear reactions. Right. So when you got to that point where you had protons and up, neutrons... Down, Up-down quarks were gathering together the, to make protons yes, and neutrons. Yes, right. Okay. And in fact, we probably don't have a particularly great model for that transition to when the protons and neutrons, but what we can say is when the, the properties of the universe at that particular time would favor 
the protons and neutrons as being the most likely things to be there. Mm-hmm. And light. What we're talking about is mostly gamma rays, but there was some spectrum light. of light. There was not still a lot. Visible light. Yes, in fact, the in fact, uh, not visible light, right? Definitely not visible light. At no, that it's point. probably much higher energy gamma than rays. yes, probably yeah. so. But what we one of the things that comes out of the calculations of that period of nucleosynthesis is that the ratio of particles to Photons. Photons are the particles of electromagnetic radiation. I'll use electromagnetic radiation. Those are light right. particles. Those are light particles. Visible light particles. Yes. There were about 10 to the 10th, which is 10 billion times as many light particles as there were protons and neutrons. Okay. So at that, that point, well, there was visible light is what you're saying. Well, it was probably all gamma rays still. Oh, so there wasn't visible light. No, there were photons. There were photons. Gotcha. Very high energy photons. Super high energy. But there were 10 billion times as many of the photons as there were the uh, particles. And those high energy photons in the realm almost certainly of gamma rays and X-rays are the microwave background radiation that we see today. So they've cooled down. Yes, and the universe expanded, they cooled down too. And, and so they've gotten down to right. the frequency of microwaves. Right. In other words, you know, I can't give you the exact number, but I would say that the mean temperature of those photons at that particular time was probably in the order of 10 million electron volts. Which, That's a lot. which is a very high, <laughs> which is a very high temperature. Okay, um, like way more than you need to. Yeah, it's probably in the order, you know, somewhere like a billion uh, kelvins, okay. which is the temperature scale we use. The microwave background radiation today is around two kelvins. Oh wow! Okay, but the, so it went from but a billion kelvin to two kelvin, right? As because of the cooling in the when things expand, they cool. Sure, sure. So, sure. so that's part of it, but. The protons and neutrons finally came into existence, mm-hmm. and they started reacting to make the combination of, of nuclei that I was talking about a little bit earlier. Mm-hmm. So we cool, we cool, we cool, we start yeah. to get helium and hydrogen yeah. and a little bit of lithium. And then we cool, we cool, we cool, and those things start to coalesce into things, or they start to accrete into things like like stars. Yes, essentially. Yeah. Right. And so now we've got a galaxy, or sorry, a universe, basically filled with these elementary stars, these first stars. Yes. And it, in my mind, that's sort of what I'm picturing is the dots on my piece of elastic or, or you know latex or whatever you want to call it, the rubberized sheet that we're pulling over this hoop, those dots are collections of star masses. Yes. That are now starting to form the early galaxies. Yeah. Either with or without black holes at this point. Black holes is something that pardon the use of the word evolved, but evolved after star formation. Is that oh, yes. correct? Yes. In other words it's it's possible that at the time of Big Bang, uh, black holes could have been formed. We no longer think that that happened. Okay. But one of Hawking's original ideas was that there could have been black holes at the time of the Big Bang. Oh, okay. That at that point, there was not enough known to say yes or no. Uh, but now we don't think that the conditions were such that black holes were likely to form. Okay. So that's something that evolved later. Black right. holes are a more recent development yes. in cosmic Right, time. exactly. <laughs> yes. Okay, so as this latex is being stretched, these now clusters of stars and galaxies are moving further and further away, right? Right. 
and the on average, on average, yes, from each other, yes. And so it's the galaxy, or the sorry, the universe is now cooling down further and further, getting colder and colder, and the, the speed the at back- which they're accelerating away is increasing. Is that correct? Also, that's um, this is not an area I know very well, but the the fact that the universe at the farthest distances are actually speeding up a little bit, mm-hmm. which is a, a discovery of about 20 years ago or so. Yes. That probably didn't happen until fairly far along in the in the history of the universe. So they think uh, it was maybe a more uniform expansion, yes. and now it's starting to increase? Yes, exactly. Do they have any idea what spurred it? Well, there's this thing that they don't know what it is, the, the dark energy. Oh, I see. Okay. So, so is that something that they think possibly evolved later? Yes. In the universe? Yes. Uh, no, this is something, and, and this is an area I don't know very well. So I'm, I oh, that's okay. Really we can we can just touch it and then move yeah. on to something. No, no, no. Um, it was kind of a surprise when uh, two different groups of people, uh, two different groups of experimenters, uh, were measuring the acceleration of uh, the expansion of the universe, everyone expected to be slowing down. In, in other words, a deceleration. Mm-hmm. Uh, for years, they, they talked about in cosmology the deceleration parameter. Well, so it, they, it did, by definition, decelerate for some period of time, right? It, we had this huge inflationary period, and then it had to slow right. down and cool down. Right. Well, the, the, uh, the inflationary period happened so soon and so early it, it, it's a separate epic. It's a separate. It's a whole separate yeah. topic. Yes. Oh, okay, okay. Yeah. In other words, so well, let's talk about right after the inflationary period, we see an expansion still. Yes. yes. But we had every reason to believe that it, that expansion started off as fast as it was going to start, and then was going to slow over time. Not necessarily. We oh, we expected that. That we ex- we expected that. Yes. But then we went out and did the research and looked, right. and we found we that, found that it's actually getting faster. Right. Is that right? Right. But okay. we only saw that looking out at the farthest distances that we could see. That was where we discovered, instead of having things going more slowly, they're going faster. But the stuff that's closer to us is going away from us more slowly than the stuff that's going far, that's further away. Yes. But is that going away from us at an increasing rate, the stuff that's closer? Or well, we that, can't measure it. We, we can't measure it. Okay. Yeah. In other words, uh, it only... This effect is only seen at really great distances. It's only possible to be measured yes. at those distances. Right. Okay. Is it possible for space-time to move away faster than the speed of light currently, like after well, now in the current condition of the of the universe? Yes. So so, so uh, well, let's go back to what I was saying a little while ago. Yes. We can only see out to 13.8 billion light years. Sure. Because that's how long the universe we believe has been around. Mhm. So that's it's a horizon. It's not a boundary. It's a horizon, and right. it's expanding because when the universe is thirteen point nine billion years old, we'll be able to see even further out. Yeah. But we know there's stuff outside of that, and therefore anything outside of that horizon, the horizon is the boundary of what we call the knowable universe. Right. We can only conjecture about anything beyond that horizon. That expansion is faster than the speed of light. The expansion beyond the horizon. Yes. In then words, how does the light get to us? Because the horizon, we don't, we don't see the light. But that, doesn't doesn't our horizon expand a little bit? Yes, each year or, or yeah, but by a tiny amount. Yes, of course. So there is some light getting to us from the yes. uh, edge, so yes. to speak. 
the, the, the visible, what did you call it? Well, the visible we, university? It's, yeah, the noble The universe. noble, sorry, the noble yeah. universe. But the trouble is we can't even, because of what, we can only look back as far as stars existed. Sure. And that's not 13.8 billion years. So when I talk about this horizon, mm-hmm. it's there, but we can't see it because it's uh, hidden behind the period of time before stars were formed when the universe was just pure light. So that brings us up to an interesting idea. When we're thinking about looking outward into space, we we also need to be thinking about looking backward in time. Absolutely. Is that correct? Yeah. So when I you say... You don't see me like I am right now. You see me like I was a few nanoseconds ago. Right, right. Right, and you look great, by the way. Oh, thank you. <laughs> even even the old few nanoseconds ago, you looks pretty good. But the but the 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 idea that we're because my mind immediately went to the future because in the future we'll be able to see slightly further, but we're in actually going to be able to look further back in time. Yes, we'll be able to look farther back in time, but because the universe is older, right. But because it's older. Because it's older. It's given us enough time to see some of that light yes. that is traveling towards us yes. from further back right. in the past. And is as you right? said, yes, and as you said, you know, let's say we could see through the horizon. We can't because of the fact that there was this period before there were stars. But let's just say that we could. So we, you know, sometime in the future we'll be able to see a star that we couldn't see before. But we're seeing that star as it was yeah, yeah. 13.9 billion years ago. There's a time called the Planck time, yes. after Max Planck, mm-hmm. and that time is 10 to the minus 43 seconds, and we have no theory that can describe that first 10 to the minus 43 seconds in the history of the universe. And is that largely because we don't have uh, access to it, that we're not able to observe it or test it in any way? We can't even talk about it theoretically because... In order to be able to calculate what was happening, we would have to have that theory that puts quantum mechanics and general relativity together, and we don't have that theory. So essentially, we need to invent a new math yeah. to yes. describe that. Yes. That, and that it's time. not for lack of trying. No, I'm sure it's not. Yeah. <laughs> 80 years we've been trying to do that. <laughs> right. We've not been successful. So your specialty, let's just touch into that now. Let's let's go into that. Um, your specialty, uh, why don't you say it? Because I heard you say it, and I don't want to miss, misstate okay. it, but you've really but, focused most of your attention on... Right. Nuclear astrophysics, um, experimental nuclear astrophysics, is the study of nuclear reactions. And we can't build a star, um, but we, we, what we can do is we can measure reactions in the laboratory. Okay. Now... It takes a lot more than just a single measurement because what happens in a star is all these particles are coming together at all kinds of different velocities, different uh, density conditions, different chemical compositions. But what we can do is to say, okay, and and this was uh, sort of what we would do, is to say, okay, I'm going to measure how particle X and particle Y interact at this energy. Okay. Now I'm going to change the energy in my accelerator, and I'm going to bring these two things together at a different energy. And then I'm going to do that again and again and again until I have a curve that describes how the reactions between these two particular particles depend upon energy. Okay. Now once I have that, I can then extrapolate to if these two particles were not in 
a laboratory where I was sending particle X into particle Y and seeing what happens, but rather they were in a star with a standard distribution of, temp- of, of energies associated with that temperature. <clears throat> we can calculate that temperature dependence. We have a number which uh, it's not a number it's a function it says okay at this temperature X, yeah. uh, yes at this temperature you get this reaction rate at this temperature another temperature you get a different reaction rate we give these numbers to the people who build models of the stars now we have never seen inside a star right turns out but looking at the at the oscillations of the surface of the sun we can make some inferences observationally of what happens inside the sun. But what we've been doing since the late 19th century, we use the laws of physics to determine what's going on inside the, the sun. Mm-hmm. We, the pressure, the temperature, the density, mm-hmm. the chemical composition, the reaction rates that are occurring, the, the, the opacity of light uh, trying to find its way from the center of the sun out to the surface um, so that before it gets, once it gets to the surface, 8.2 minutes, it's on its way to us. Mm-hmm. Uh, but 8 minutes, 20 seconds, it's on its way to us. But uh, what's happening inside the sun, we don't see, so we calculate. So anyway, these are the people who calculate what are called uh, solar models, mm-hmm. uh, stellar models for other stars. So we hand them what the results of what we measured in the laboratory, and they use that in their models to evolve the star. So you start out, there's a, the very uh, early stages of stars that are called the main sequence. This is the stage in all the stars, from the low-mass stars to the high-mass stars, where nuclear reactions which fuse hydrogen into helium occur. And so there's a point at which the very center of the star, the core of the star, exhausts its hydrogen, and then the star begins to evolve, typically turning into a giant phase of the star. But these people who do these calculations take the numbers that we give them, Mm -hmm. they find the conditions at various points inside the star, and it's a huge calculational uh, job, which in recent years has become easier because we have better, bigger faster computers. Yeah, I was just going to I was just going to touch on that, but why don't you finish your thought and then anyway, I've got a few questions. So, so they do at time 0 when the first nuclear reactions occur at the very beginning of the main sequence, they do a calculation. Well, that slightly changes the composition and temperature of the star. So then they go to the next time step and the next time step and the next time step. And of course, if your time steps are too big, you don't get a very good answer. If they're too small, it takes forever to do the calculation. So you have to do a compromise when you do the calculation, saying, okay, this is a good time period, and then we're going to calculate many, many times, and we see the, 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 the conditions inside the star change mm-hmm. and change and change until we reach a point where the star is going to have to make a big adjustment. If all the hydrogen is gone and that's what's keeping the star stable, you're going to have to do something else. So then you begin to turn helium into carbon, but not suddenly. It, it takes a, a bit of readjustment in the structure of the star as it, as it expands and becomes a giant star from uh, the main sequence star. 
you were saying that you were working in a laboratory where you would uh, crash particles together at different energy levels. Right. So you would take, let's say, two helium or two hydrogen atoms, and you would accelerate them to a certain energy level. And when you say a certain energy level, you were talking about the speed at which they're traveling. Yes, is that exactly. Correct? Yes. And so it's not level is probably not the right word to use. It's we we accelerate particles to a given speed. But that increases their energy. Yes. Right? The faster they're going, the more energetic they are considered to be. And typically, that means the more likely they are to react. Right. So you say, okay, what happens when you crash hydrogen atom number one into hydrogen atom number two at this speed, at that's whatever what, speed? At that's speed. what we would measure, except that wasn't the kind of experiments I, I did. Oh, I'm sorry. Then I misunderstood no, you no, were no. talking about no, the experiments no. that so, you did. Okay, so for example, mm-hmm. uh, and I know this... Uh, Maybe a little bit technical. That's okay. Let's in do it. In order to be able to measure, let's go back to my PhD thesis. Then sure. I can talk about some of the stuff I did at the University of Colorado Cyclotron in Boulder. But let's go back to my my uh, PhD thesis. It turns out that banging helium into carbon to measure the rate at which helium plus carbon goes to oxygen sixteen had some technical difficulties. But we had a way to do this reaction differently, indirectly. And this was my PhD thesis. So what we did was we banged carbon, not into helium, because helium is a gas, but we banged it into a, an isotope of lithium called lithium-6. As the carbon-12 bangs into the lithium-6, Lithium-6 turns out to look an awful lot like hydrogen-2, which is called a deuteron, and helium-4. So add 4 from the helium, 2 from the hydrogen-2 or deuterium, and you have the lithium-6. Okay. So the indirect measurement that was my PhD thesis was to accelerate the carbon, bang it into lithium-6, and when a deuteron came off, you would know that what you've done was the same thing as adding carbon to helium. I see. So we would measure... It was the same energy level as yes. what we were trying to right. determine, but so you couldn't what, do it the other way. Yeah, there was a problem with doing it directly. Okay. And so basically this was what I spent several years doing. Okay. Uh, again, at various energies. But so, you actually did that. You actually accelerated particles and banged them into each other to right. determine what it might be like inside of a star. Precisely. Okay. And when you're saying different energy levels, you're saying different speeds that you're that you're accelerating these. Well, yeah. Okay. Particles don't use to. the level. Don't use the level in that case. But basically, we change the bombardment energy. Let's okay. put it that way. Okay. So, so we start out with carbon into lithium six at a certain energy. We make the measurements. So we take the carbon at a different energy make the measurements. Take the carbon at a different energy, take the measurements. So when you that, say energy, though, it's in a particle accelerator, right? Yes. And so the faster it's going, the, the higher the energy? Yes. Okay. I just want to make yeah, sure that, yes. oh, that no, no, makes no. sense there's, to everybody. There's a, there's a very simple relationship between energy and, and velocity. Okay. And so basically what we did, we the particle accelerator that I used for my PhD thesis was a linear accelerator called a tandem Van de Graaff, and we could accelerate the carbon to high enough energies to be able for the reactions to occur, to measure the outgoing uh, hydrogen tubes are called deuteriums, and as a result, interpret those to come up with 
the number that we needed to be able to give the people who calculated the stellar models to determine what is the rate at which helium added to carbon gives you oxygen. Okay. So that was my that was my PhD thesis. So in Colorado, we had a cyclotron, which is a different type of accelerator, and we were looking at the reactions that would occur when a supernova explosion occurred. Okay. And so we there was a group of four of us uh, with uh, various postdoctoral students and graduate students over a period of about six or seven years uh, but the four of us at the core were there for all the experiments but we had a number of publications over different possible regions of the periodic chart that reactions might occur when a supernova explosion occurred and the results were published between roughly 1975 and 1982 and so would you say that your experiments directly Led to, led to our current understanding of what's happening inside of stars. It, it turns out that uh, these reactions are so reluctant to occur that you really are only getting reactions at the center of the star. Oh, I see. So, but what we do see is as the as the star evolves, the conditions at the center change. So it's not so much that we're most of the star is not going to be involved in nuclear reactions. Okay. It's only the central core that, that has the nuclear reactions. And so w- what I was one of the people who measured this reaction in different ways. Uh, all of us seem to have converged on pretty much the same answer as to how quickly oxygen is made in the stars. And for the later work on the supernova explosions, once again, we were only one group of a number of groups that are doing nuclear astrophysics, all of whom are contributing the results of their measurements to those people who do the, the, modeling, the right? modeling. Okay. And so were you able to, essentially, you were talking about supernova, right? Yes. Was that, was second, later, yeah, that was the later work. Your later work. Yeah. Um, what kinds of application? Because we actually talk about, or I, I had a, a couple of questions about application. Um, what kinds of practical application did that lead to, or if any, in, in your understanding? And in, maybe it wasn't practical for like me, like somebody who's going to use the internet and drive my car, but practical for the people that use your information to make their work more applicable, or to uh, I don't know. If that's this this is a, this, this really. Pretty much is in the uh, the the area of pure physics, pure research. In other words, it helps us understand the history of our universe. But in terms of a practical application for uh, you know improvement in your cell phone or something like that. No, no, no. Yeah, no. I was thinking more practical application for the people that used your research to then model stars or oh, yeah. model oh, supernova. Okay, yeah, right. Sorry. Let, let's just say we're all one big fraternity of trying to understand what happened in the history of the universe. And our particular part of that understanding is the nuclear reactions and, and the origin and production of chemical elements. Okay. Uh, in the so, center of stars. So, yeah, in the center of stars. But eventually that material that, that happens in the center of the stars gets spread out. I mean, our solar system was formed from a gas and dust cloud, the material of which was almost certainly involved in previous stars. These stars lived their life in one way or the other expelled a fair amount of the material before they became the 
remnants of the star. And that material gets cycled around in the universe and new stars are formed. And our particular star was formed with the solar system as well. Mm-hmm. If we go back again 25, 30 years, people conjectured, but no one knew for sure if there were planets around other stars. Now we see planets everywhere. Thousands of, of exosolar planets have been discovered. And, mm-hmm. and so we know that when a star is formed, there's a very good chance it's also going to have some planets around it. Uh, but our particular solar system was formed 4.5 billion years ago, and the material from which we were formed had certainly been in more than one previous star. We're new. Yeah, the universe, we're pretty- is th- universe is, is 13.8 billion years old, and our solar system is only 4.5 billion years old. So we came along pretty late in the game. Sure. Is it likely that the remnants of some of those stars are still lingering around somewhere? I'm, oh, yeah. I'm guessing they're probably super massive, the remnants, uh, and maybe even a black hole here or there. Oh, yeah. So is no. there probably one lurking around in our immediate vicinity, cosmically speaking? I think we would. It, well, it depends on how close you how what you mean by Not necessarily being. to be dangerous to us, but, no. but, but, uh, but oh, probably yeah. the remnants of the stars yeah. that had to explode and go supernova yeah. to generate the gold and the iron and the zinc and the things. Yeah that we see on our planet, the aluminum, um, those remnants are floating around somewhere. Oh, yeah. And, and they're in our neighborhood, at least, cosmically speaking. Yes. Is that right? They're, they're certainly in our part of the, of the galaxy. But the sure. nearest star that actually is still generating energy and, and providing light from the nuclear reactions is about four light years away. Okay. Uh, so I know that there are neutron stars that have been measured that are you know, hundreds of light years away. Uh, Do we anticipate that there's any remnants of those stars that that created the material that our sun uh, it's is possible. made from are closer than that, or closer than four light years away? Oh, it's unlikely. That's unlikely. I have a feeling that we would, I don't know this for sure, but I have a feeling that there'd be some way to detect them. Sure. Um I mean, or we'd the, the, see their gravitational pull. We'd see if the they're really close or enough, uh, or the, what we see probably is how they were perturbing other nearby objects. Right. Yes. Yeah, yeah. But I'd say the, the probability is very small that they're they're any really nearby. Okay. Uh, now, hundred light years is pretty far away. There are three remnants that you normally would think of from the life of a star. And at some point, the star becomes uh, doesn't generate any more nuclear energy. It's it's a dead fossil, mm-hmm. basically. But it's still shining in some one way or another. Uh, but it's no longer uh, actively generating energy. It's, it's from whatever's left over. White dwarf, mm-hmm. which is something that uh, we believe our sun is going to become. Mm-hmm. White dwarf, our white dwarf will probably have uh, mostly carbon and oxygen. Um, it will be um, the density of a white dwarf, if you could take a, a sugar cube piece of it, would weigh about a ton. So it's extremely dense wow. matter. Yeah. The uh, uh, two other remnants that are the results of a supernova explosion, so they come from those high-mass stars more than eight times the mass of the sun. Uh, one is a neutron star, and of course the exciting thing recently was seeing the merger of two neutron stars and the formation of the heavy uh, elements from that. Um, and then black holes, which we can't see directly, but we can see their effects on other... and. All of these have been detected. I mean, white dwarfs have been known for a very long time. Mm-hmm. Um, and neutron stars were basically discovered uh, as a result of uh, discovering pulsars in 1967. 
the uh, best explanation for what a pulsar was was a spinning neutron star and now we've literally seen hundreds of neutron stars mostly as pulsars um, and then black holes the first black hole that uh, was or the first object that was really thought to be a black hole was a radio source called Cygnus X1 which was discovered and studied in the 1970s and now we know that there are massive black holes which are created in a very different way than the black holes that are stellar remnants at the centers of all galaxies including our own and basically, the center of a galaxy is more dense, and once things coalesce to the point that they exceed a certain density, the material collapses into a black hole. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, it's slowly eating up everything else around it uh, until it becomes a massive black hole. Very recent image of a black hole that was published in the last couple of weeks in the in the galaxy M87. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it was created in this way that we think all of them very early on in the history of the galaxy when the density was high and all these objects coalesced, exceeded the density for it to collapse into a black hole and become a black hole. Cool. <laughs> That's so cool. It is. <laughs> Sorry, I'm just kind of mind blown for a second listening right. to you. Um, I heard recently, and I'm, I'm sure that you've known this for longer, um, that our star uh, is going to die in like five billion years but that that won't be the end of our planet our planet's actually going to probably uh be engulfed by the expanding star our expanding sun in like one and a half billion years or something around there no it'll change no i i I think that we have at least four billion years before the sun uh engulfs us oh okay so it's not it's not imminent no okay Uh, (laughs) <laughs> but what will be it's happening... Not imminent. No. It's not in 1.4 billion years. It's more like 4 billion years. <laughs> yes, exactly. Yeah. Um, but I'm concerned we're going to destroy ourselves long before yeah, the Yeah, I think we have a lot more to worry about that. Right. The, I was just curious, that because I had heard that that... I don't know why I heard that. I think I read it in a science journal. Probably not hmm. one that was peer-reviewed. Well, but certainly, one that says studies show that. And No, it's not that... You know, what I understand of stellar evolution, mm-hmm. the, the sun will slowly get hotter. And right. it could be that it's going to change our climate if we don't do it for ourselves. That's the way we're doing it. Uh, but the sun's expansion, so that it actually engulfs our planet, is not going to happen until close to the end. So maybe that's what they were talking about, and I just misunderstood or misremembered the information. Yeah. So the sun is going to get hotter, and yeah. in 1.4 billion years, it's likely that it'll be too hot for life to be. Well, I, I haven't burn seen. Off our atmosphere. I haven't seen that study, but that, you haven't seen that. But that's much more likely than the scenario of us of the sun expanding in only 1.4 billion years. That that just isn't going to happen. That's not going to happen. Okay. And the increase in the sun's temperature is at a very very slow rate. Mm-hmm. So, uh, which gives us enough time to as a planet. It to sort of adjust, right? I mean, I'm sure there's a Hopefully. certain, I'm sure there's a certain high end where we can't get any hotter. Yes. Than, or the sun will get so hot that we can't adjust. Right. But we don't seem to be at that point. No. And we probably won't be for about a billion years. So there's yeah. hope. 
Okay, what a phenomenal podcast. Uh, Clyde was so generous with his time and was was so... His language is just so rich and his understanding is just so rich. And it's important that you understand how important it is <laughs> to engage with this kind of material. I encourage you, uh, upon listening to this, to go to the internet and to look up pictures of, uh, you know, the inflationary period. Look up pictures of, you know, deep space through the Hubble telescope. Understand more about the geometry and the just the vastness and wonder of our cosmos. And do take time to actually do that. If you haven't looked into our cosmic past and recognized the beauty and wonder of it and experienced that sense of awe, you're really doing yourself a disservice. I challenge all of you to go out and, for instance, look at a picture of the Sombrero Galaxy or a picture of Andromeda and, and feel nothing. You will feel just an intense sense of awe and and wonder about what could be alive or, or not alive or what alien species or worlds or moons might exist in such a place and really engage with you know these celestial bodies these these universal bodies if you will on their scale go and find the scale that we're talking about see how big our earth is compared to our star compared to the stars that are the biggest stars compared to galaxies compared to clusters of galaxies and filaments of galaxies. There's all this wonderful, rich language and and now real pictures, actual pictures of these, these objects. The filaments, for instance, are the, the way that we understand the universe and the filaments that, that are made up of clusters of clusters of galaxies are all based off of real data, real data that our telescopes have pulled out of the universe and compiled in a supercomputer to give us a view, essentially a, a third-person view of what the universe looks like, as if you as if you had it in your hands, and it's it's just a beautiful, beautiful picture, and it's just a wondrous uh, amount of information when you when you consider what's actually there—the trillions upon trillions upon trillions of stars, and the billions upon billions upon billions of galaxies, and just the incredible vastness of it all. So I hope this inspires you to do that. I hope that my nonsense didn't detract too much, and I hope Clyde's tapping didn't you know tapping on the desk didn't detract too much either. But we're going to try in on this podcast to really dive into this type of science and bring out the wonder and the awe for you. I'm not interested in just rolling around in the dirt with all the theists and, and all the folks that have muddy thinking. I'm really interested in this type of enlightening conversation. And if you couldn't tell, I, I'm really interested in this stuff just by the way, I, just by the things that I actually knew. I was surprised at what I knew and I was surprised at how I was able to articulate it there with a real scientist, with somebody that does this for a living and has done it for 50 years. So very encouraging stuff. Uh, I hope you enjoyed this episode. I do look forward to producing more like it um, in all aspects of science. And uh, you've been listening to Ear Seduction. Thank you so much. Ah.